I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome back to Bitches on Comics. I am your host, Sarah Century. And hello, I'm your other host, S.E. Fleenor. I am super pumped because today we have the inimitable Trung Lee Nguyen. Hi, Trung. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to chat with the two of you. Yay. I'm, I'm particularly excited because just before we started recording, Trung let us know that uh, he has not really been doing a lot of let us say, grown-up podcast. So I'm like, <laughs> let's see where we go from here. I'm very, very excited. So Trung, do you want to tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Trung Ling Nguyen. I am a comic artist and writer from Minneapolis. I live with my partner and my brother and three hens. And uh, I haven't been doing this feels like I haven't been doing it for very long, but The Magic Fish was my debut graphic novel. I have literally never written anything before that book, so I'm very excited that it seems to have been warmly received. Uh, yeah, and I'm just pleased as punch to kind of be hanging out and talking about my work. We are just pleased as punch to have you. That's a very cute phrase. I'm going to be using <laughs> that now. 
So you mentioned that this is the first thing you've written, but you've also done art for a pretty good body of work, including the Marshall Lee Spectacular and then Forbidden Romance. Is that yeah, the right Yeah, Fresh title? Romance and then Twisted Romance. And then I think that might have been it. <laughs> um, I did awesome. some smaller kind of narrative work too, but um, the, the writers that I've worked with so far have been Mel Gilman, uh, Marguerite Bennett, and Alex DeCampi. Mm. That's very cool. We are big fans of Marguerite Bennett here at Bitches on Comics. So I'm pretty jealous. Mm-hmm. Was I, Marguerite I adore Bennett Marguerite. Cool? Yeah, she was cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marguerite is one of my favorite, favorite people. <laughs> she's, she's excellent. I love that. And I love that her social media handle is Evil Marguerite. And it turns out she's just like lovely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, okay, cool. You do you, friend. Amazing. So the Magic Fish came out during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. During 2020. And that's like a terrible time to debut. How has the process been? Honestly, I did not dislike it. I kind of secretly think that this might have been the perfect way for me to debut because I didn't have to be places. People didn't have to find out immediately how like easily I get lost and how late I am to things. <laughs> like I just had to sit down at my desk mm-hmm. and show up on a panel and talk about my work. And that seems to be my comfort level. So like people have like a like an okay impression of me right now <laughs> after my <laughs> debut. <laughs> You're like, don't let them find out. <laughs> <laughs> they will never have to know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I actually, I had a, I had a pretty pleasant go of it. Um, and our, the publicist over at Random House Graphic, Nicole, did such a really good job of keeping me really busy and engaged with, you know, the, our readers and, um, kind of librarians and teachers and booksellers. So I, I think I had a really, really lovely time. They facilitated an excellent experience for me. Uh, just a personal aside, is that Nicole Valdez? Yes, it is Nicole Valdez. Gotcha. Yeah, I've definitely uh, dealt with Nicole just a little bit. Dealt with sounds like it's bad. Um, But like uh, whenever I was writing a little bit more for sci-fi, I did a lot of write-ups of the books that Nicole was representing and Mm. always just such a delight to work with. Yeah, Nicole is delightful. Always just a ray of sunshine in my day. (laughs) So you talked about how this is your first writing project. And I'm curious if in the process there was anything new you learned or anything that surprised you. Yeah, so, so much. I mean, first of all, I'm like, I'm a creature of habit and I'm a creature of rules. Like, I really like to have parameters. I like to know what I'm getting myself into. And so before I started writing, writing The Magic Fish, like I'd put together like an outline and a little pitch document so I knew what it was going to be about. And then I asked for script samples from people so that I could get an idea of like, how do I physically sit down and type it out and then like put it in a way that is communicable to my editors so that they won't tear their hair out all the time. And everybody has a totally different process. And that was both very heartening and extremely unhelpful because I didn't know. I was like, oh, so I get to make up all of the rules. Um, And so basically what I learned is that writing is really hard (laughs) for the longest time. I mean, like I have worked with writers before And as someone who like thinks narratively, but does it from a visual perspective, I had all kinds of like kind of ideas about what I like in a script and how a script can be put together in a way that I would find palatable to like digest and then like communicate on the page. Uh, But it turns out that I have no idea how to write for an artist. I was like, I could be, I'm just writing for myself, so I'll know what I mean. And then I'll write something down. And then when I get to the drawing process, I'll go back and I'll be like, what the hell was I doing? (laughs) What did I mean? Um, So I, uh, I learned that I like to do different parts of the process 
separately. I can't inchworm. I can't draw and write at the same time. I need for there to be a script that is editable. I need there to be a full sense of direction on the page before I go on and start constructing the compositions of the actual comic book pages. So there were a lot of things that I learned in terms of like how to collaborate because in collaborating with myself, I learned that I am not an ideal collaborator in a lot of different ways. Um, And there were different things that I could do to sort of like adjust and um, figure out how to be forgiving of myself, figure out where there are hiccups in communication between my writer self and my artist self. So there's just a lot. It was a huge learning curve, but it was such an enriching experience. And I, I, I think I took to it really well. I would certainly say so. So you talked about, you know, having to think about your writer self and having to think about your artist self and how they communicate. But something I remember really clearly from your author's note at the end of The Magic Fish is, and I actually wrote it down because I thought it was like, oh my God, this is so perfectly and interestingly phrased. So you said that comic books are a hybrid language between orthography and iconography. And I'm curious because it sounds like in the creation process, you kind of have to pull those two pieces apart, but then they come back together through the creation. And I'm just curious, do you think that's still true? And what do you think is the key to like navigating those two parts? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. Um, the key that I I imagine that this is how it goes. Like I haven't done a lot of work outside of comics, but one thing that always fascinates me about like animation is when people kind of go by like storyboard oriented um, animation directions. And that's something that was totally new to me. I thought everything needed to be scripted first. I thought the writing process went a particular way because that's how I'm used to comics being made. Like I like to have a script done first and then I like to be able to like um, weave in the images and then like make adjustments from there. So it's always to my mind, a syncretic experience And I'm someone who's kind of used to thinking about things visually, like I consider myself to be an artist first. But at the same time, if I'm making my own comic, if I'm making any kind of narrative vehicle by which I'm going to be telling the story through the art, it turns out that I'm someone who starts with the words. And so that's always kind of like a strange thing to realize. And I think it really just depends on the type of project it is. It depends on the types of creators that are involved. But I think between the words and the pictures between that orthography and iconography, everyone starts more strongly from a particular place. And then we kind of bounce back and forth between the two to establish a dialogue. And I think that that process of kind of weaving between those two things and making this whole experience is really critical to making, you know, really excellent work, but it's also a very organic process. And I think it lends itself to the incredibly individual and like unique experiences of every single new comic that you read. Yeah, I noticed that there was kind of this running theme of finding common ground through archetypes. And I was just kind of curious how you feel about that, because I think it's really interesting how, to me, I think this story kind of reinforces the idea that there's the same legends kind of again and again, but they have like different themes. But, you know, you see them all throughout history, right? Like we see these kind of, you know, people will say there's only three different kinds of story or something like that, which like I think is a little reductive. But at the same time, it's true. Like we do just kind of see these same things again and again and again. And I think it's so interesting how the main characters were kind of drawn together by those archetypes. 
groups and like the way that they see them completely differently. So in that way, I feel like there's a lot of study of kind of empathy in this story. And I was just curious if you had any additional thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, fairy tales are something that I've always loved and think quite a lot about. And so um, one thing that has always fascinated me about how kind of malleable and dynamic the process of storytelling in terms of fairy tales is, is the fact that archetypes... Um, like the characters that kind of interact with each other don't really have a lot of internal psychology in a lot of the older stories that were told, or even the versions that are sort of like refined and edited by like the Brothers Grimm, for example. The characters tend not to have a lot of internal dialogue. They're not motivated by something deep inside and everything that they're motivated by that we think is internal are actually kind of the things that we project onto them like oh this character must be sad this character must be suffering so they must be motivated to do these things but there's not really any explicit evidence of that and so the process of oral tradition fairy tales is quite a lot about playing with the audience's sense of empathy Um, and i think that's kind of a really beautiful way to tell stories and have it be a communal experience It's not something that would fly in a lot of contemporary media because we do like to have our characters be multidimensional and we like for them to have their own sense of unique individuality, even away from their creators, away from their audiences or their readerships. And fairy tales aren't like that. They depend on us to kind of like insert ourselves into them. So like all fairy tale characters are to a large extent like self-insert characters, which I find to be really fun. And I I really enjoy it because it's one of those uh, situations where a story might not have a whole lot to say on its own, but it's more about the storyteller. You learn about who is telling the story and you start to develop a, a connection with them in that way. And I really love that about fairy tales, no matter how like kind of dark and visceral they get. They're always about accessing empathy and trying to understand someone else's fears and their priorities. Right. And it's something that kind of changes over time, right? Because there's so much where people are, you know, very mad that they made a movie about Cruella or something like that. And to me, I'm just like, well, I get it. But like at the same time, that just gets to be this generation's version of that, right? So I always think that it's just going to stay changeable. Like it's always going to be kind of an amorphous thing. And as you say, it's always like a little bit self-insert because now we're in this age of being like, oh, well, there's more to this like villainized women who were like the femme fatale or something. This, I don't know if this holds up with Cruella, right? Like I haven't seen the movie or anything, but I just think that we're like looking a little bit deeper into stories like that, right? Where it's like the person who was villainized now we're like, oh, but maybe they had a point, you know, at some point. And I think that that speaks to kind of where we're at overall in a lot of ways. And I think that there's just something interesting about that, right? Like how it does kind of go from like period to period to period. Like you can see how cultural norms of the time kind of change. Because like talking about like The Little Mermaid or something, right? You have Hans Christian Andersen's version, and then you have the Disney version, which made so many changes. And I think a lot of them were just kind of like shareholder decisions, right? So it was very interesting, I guess, because it goes from era to era, right? In some ways too. And I think that that was part of this story as well, is having this kind of generational difference too. Yeah. And it tells you a lot about the priorities of the storytellers. Like you mentioned, like the shareholders, like, yeah, if you're going to have a really corporatized version of a fairy tale, it's going to be sanitized. And a lot of 
ways that will make the audience comfortable enough to spend money. And that in and of itself tells you about the storyteller and the priorities of the context in which they live. Like, I think it's all like, no matter how cloying, <laughs> I guess, like a, some iterative works might be like, they, they tell you a lot about the people who are involved. And I always find that to be really fascinating. Yeah, I think it's definitely a thing in comics too, right? Where you'll see people who they're working on these characters that have been around for not quite a hundred years, but we're going on a hundred years, right? And like, they're all kind of these like cultural icons if you're talking about like superheroes, right? And then obviously even just superheroes have changed so much over like this 80 year period or something along those lines. But you'll see creators who are really working almost like they're doing what they can to work against the grain in a lot of ways. Like they're trying to have more queer rep or something like that, but you can see like the corporate interest on the story be like, no. <laughs> Which obviously is not something that had to be dealt with in this story, but um, it's just kind of like another part of it that I think of where it's like, yeah, even if it is something that's essentially, because superhero comics pretty much the whole time have just been owned by like major publishers or like corporations or something like that. And then it's just like you know, all this time passes and what that means even in and of itself has changed just so much over this time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And comics I find to be so unique, especially like with the, with like all the different intellectual properties that are floating around because so many different creators get their hands on like us, like this handful of characters. And so you do get the sense that like, even though like no matter how hard the editors are trying to create this kind of unified um, universe in terms of whatever event is happening at the, at the moment or like whatever like uh, story universe the stories take place in like it's difficult to do that in a way that sort of like removes the human element of it that these are fictional characters that are told by people with you know their own particular values and their own particular priorities so it's always fun to kind of look at comics in terms of like where you find the comics in history and then also the people who are involved in making them. Mm -hmm. And how those things can be like a little bit at odds sometimes, Absolutely. which is always like kind of interesting, I guess, to watch play out. And I guess it's just something that'll continue to develop over time, right? It's just where we're at now. We have no idea like <laughs> where these stories are going to go in a hundred years, right? <laughs> So I was curious too, since there's so much fairy tale in this, I was wondering when you were young and coming of age, was that a big part of your life? And also, what were some of your favorite fairy tales and why do you think that they stuck out to you so much? Yeah, certainly. Um, fairy tales, um, like I like the the main characters in the book, um, had a similar experience kind of growing up and learning how to navigate the English language with my parents who were learning alongside me. And we we did go to the library and we checked out a lot of fairy tale books and I love them because the images were so lovingly put together. And so they've always kind of been a pretty big part of my life. And then I kind of fell off a little bit in high school, but I started to take a more critical look at them when I was in college. And so they've always been pretty important to me. I'm not really the sort of person who makes stories that they wish that they'd had when they were younger, because I think that all of the stories that I had when I was younger were the stories that I wanted and needed. And so I, I don't think that I had like a particular craving, even while I was coming out, for 
queer media necessarily because I was used to reading about the other and I was used to reading about things that were fantastical or exotic to my mind because my experience was, you know, very limited and very sheltered and and my parents were refugees and I'm an immigrant. And so there are a lot of things in terms of like popular culture in the United States that I found to be really alienating simply because I just didn't have the requisite experience to understand them. So, you know, if a character like went to summer camp, I would be like, what is summer camp? And then I would try to find out what summer camp is. And it's like, oh, like people will live closer to nature without amenities. This sounds terrible. And I would ask my parents about it. And they're like, oh, people do this for fun. Like, you know, people live like this, like in the world where we come from, right? And so there are a lot of like little just hiccups in experience where I just assumed that all of the stories that I was going to be consuming are going to be worlds apart from me and I would have to just extend my empathy a little further. And so there wasn't a huge difference between reading a fairy tale where, you know, like a princess has three dresses wrapped up in a tiny little walnut and then she wins the heart of a prince um, after running away from her tyrannical father. Like between that kind of story and like, I don't know, the Goonies or something like that, everything was really fantastical to me. And so I didn't really make a huge distinction between the different genres or the different story universes. So fairy tales were something that I found to be much more accessible also because they are in a lot of ways self-inserts. So I can sort of like imagine myself in this universe. And no matter how strange it was, it was always very inviting to me. And I could sort of project whatever imaginary things I wanted into it. Whereas with a lot of contemporaneous media, I would feel like, oh, like I I don't have enough knowledge to understand what's going on here. And so I would feel like kind of pushed out of those spaces. So it's just a, yeah, it was just kind of a difference in the ways that I facilitated the kind of stories that I would take in. I don't know if that fully answers your question. (laughs) Yeah, I think it does. It definitely is giving me something to think about, too, because I have thought about this stuff a little bit. I definitely read a lot of fairy tales whenever I was growing up and just read, like, everything because I was—I, like, grew up in a rural area where it was me and the library besties, you know? (laughs) So being in a small town, it's not what you describe, but in some ways similar because even if you like read a comic where New York City is in it, you're like, what is that? Mm -hmm. Like, I can't even imagine something that like looks like this. And then you're like imagining yourself in that that space, right? So in some ways, the ordinary for some does become fantastical, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So basically, I'll just have like plenty of thinking to do on that, I guess, as I as I go forward. Something else I wanted to talk about was the way that you switch out the coloring and how the different colors mean different things from going to fairy tale to like a memory to the present. I'm curious if that was something that was super deliberate. Is it something that came to you at a certain point? Because I felt like it added a lot to the story, but I just, I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, no, it really did add a lot to the story and it was actually a compromise. It was like an editorial suggestion. I forget, I should really find out if it was Gina or if it was Whitney who suggested the different color palettes. But we decided earlier on that we were going to do kind of limited palettes because I'm not someone who's like a very good colorist. It's something that I've never been super comfortable with doing um, on my own. So I was, I had originally pitched the comic in black and white and they really wanted something in full color. And so I was like, well, what can we do to take advantage of the full color printing while also work within my um, skill limitations as a creator. And so this was the suggestion that they came up with. And it was so elegant because I could switch between story universes and have it be totally legible to a reader without having to be didactic about it, without having to use a lot of like speech 
balloons or like the characters wouldn't have to say anything or didn't, I didn't have to label it. So I just, it was something that was not of my design in the original pitch, but through the magic of really wonderful editors who have a stake in making sure that the story flows in a legible way. Like it, it wound up being one of my favorite parts of the book that the different story universes were so immediately recognizable. Okay, and I need to know, how did you choose what those colors would be, right? Because it's got purple, a sort of red or almost pink, and then orange. Why those three colors? So um, so the kind of orange-yellow colors are to indicate the past. And I think about, you know, that sort of like as a morning color. Um, and so it's very like, okay, so it's going to be a little bit brighter, but it's also going to be kind of almost a little sepia-toned so that you know, people would be able to conflate that with the past a little bit more readily. The present day colors are in the pinks and reds, those kind of warm colors. And I sort of thought about it as sort of like a midday color. Like this is the the color of like a, like a really warm summer day. And it's also kind of the color of like blood. So it's being very present in the moment is kind of what I imagined with the reds and the pinks. And then the blues are to my mind, a nighttime color. Um, so I'm essentially doing like a Vasilisa the Beautiful thing with the three knights passing through. And so it was very like, oh, like it feels very natural that these colors would indicate like a certain time of day and a certain sentiment in terms of storytelling. Like I liked the notion of the blues and the purples being nighttime colors because that's when I like to read fairy tales and like bedtime stories. And so it sort of all kind of came together pretty um, organically. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. 
And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I love that because I, I always want to know, I'm like, wh- why this thing? <laughs> <laughs> In that same vein, talking about the art, Again, I read in the back matter that you thought a lot about fashion and how to utilize fashion to communicate a sense of place and time. And I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that process, if you'd be willing to share. And then I'm curious, has fashion always been something of interest to you? And how does that dovetail here? Sure. Um, Fashion has not always been something that was of interest to me. I really didn't think a whole lot about like the ways that clothes are also a form of storytelling until relatively recently. Like I liked looking at runway shows because they were interesting and they were like aesthetically just really out there. And so that was kind of like a fun, like frivolous thing. And then um, for this book, I had to do a little bit more digging and I realized that clothing can be a really wonderful storytelling tool because it tells you a lot about like both the time that you're in and kind of the context that informed that time. Like I was looking into like, why do princess dresses exist the way that we think that they do in the popular imagination, at least in the West, right? Because a lot of like the Disney princesses are pretty asynchronous in terms of the stories that they're based on and the times that they're based on. And so I went in and I uh, did a little bit of digging about like, okay, so all of these were made like between the 1930s and the 1960s. So what did mid-century America kind of look like? And I realized like, oh, like the world wars were happening. And so fashion changed significantly in, in order to adjust to the demands of Um, the war effort. And so after austerity measures fell a little bit after the world wars were over, fashion suddenly became much more extravagant, like a lot more fabrics could be used. And so really large Givenchy dresses became kind of in vogue again. And like you get dresses like Audrey Hepburn wore in Sabrina, like that is like the kind of quintessential dress silhouette. And uh, because like what Cinderella was in the 1950s, And so was Sleeping Beauty, like a lot of those iconic princesses that we um, think about in terms of like the Disney canon, wear dresses that have a silhouette like that. And I never realized that that was a consideration, that that's why we think about these things the way that we do. That's why we imagine them the way that we do. And so I had to do that with all of the different parts of the story. Like what did 1950s Vietnam look like? And how did this particular place look before the Vietnam War, before the 60s? And, you know, like what are the political implications of the things that people wore in such and such a circumstance? And then like even in the Little Mermaid story, like it's kind of got an 80s flavor because it's being told 
from the perspective of um, the mother character. And she would have seen, you know, like a lot of wuxia or like Hong Kong movies growing up. And so it was just a lot of like interrogating where the popular imagination comes from and how that differs depending on where people come from at particular moments in time. And I think actually kind of a lot of that came from me being a little bit salty about like the worst comic book storytelling advice that I had ever gotten was like some guy at one point was like, yeah, well, we like to put characters in like just t-shirts and jeans because then the story can be timeless because you won't betray the time that the story is taking place. And I find that so frustrating because the time in which a story takes place is such an integral part of the texture of a story. It makes things interesting. Like you should be like cornily enthusiastic about the time period that you're in. And if it falls out of fashion, it falls out of fashion, but maybe it'll come back around later and maybe people will develop sentiments about it as being part of a past. So I don't know, like I, I find um, clothing and architecture and just like all of the different things that make up the texture of the visual components of a story to be really important in terms of moving the story forward and placing the characters in exactly the right context for the reader to be able to pick up on. And the idea that like a t-shirt and jeans aren't of a certain time, exactly. right, <laughs> a certain culture is like so white mm -hmm. and just like come on buddy irritating like, yeah i was thinking how much that actually just explains whenever you said that it truly kind of blew my mind to be like oh is that why everybody has terrible fashion uh -huh. yes <laughs> because we've, it's famous right like we've all talked about it i feel like that's a, a major recurring theme as people are like hey it's 2021 why are we still drawing characters with hip huggers mm -hmm. you know and stuff like that which like for some reason doesn't date anything um <laughs> The idea that people actually view that as being a positive, I think I'm just going to have to sit with that and think about it. <laughs> Fume about it, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I'm just curious about it. Because, I mean, I, nine times out of ten, am just wearing, like, shorts and a t-shirt dressed like Quentin Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. But like, <laughs> yeah, don't forget the robe. You have the robe on. I often have a robe over it, which makes it perhaps worse, perhaps better, depending on who you are. <laughs> oh, man. Sarah I is your father. Yes, everyone's father is Sarah. Yep. <laughs> I'm your dad. <laughs> <laughs> your so handsome say, gay dad. I say into the mirror every morning. I, I like look into the mirror and I'm like, I'm your dad now. That's why anyway. Shaka's like, where? <laughs> She's like, oh, it's real intense in here again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, something I wanted to say, Trung, that I think is is so beautiful in the magic fish and, and really, you know, sinks up here is that you put so much time and thought into the way that you textured the outfits. And A, I just want to say thank you so much for all that back matter. It is so interesting to read about the research you did. Like, I don't know fucking shit about fashion. <laughs> I'm like, what? There's like a type of dress that like is the princess dress. Like that blew my mind reading that. But so A, thank you so much. The back matter is awesome. And I think uh, for listeners, absolutely required reading. It really will shed interesting light on, on the piece as a whole. But it also made me think about the way that you purposefully made the fairy tales reflect the teller. And that comes right back to what you were saying before about fairy tales are about who's telling that story. 
And so I, I'm like, probably going to get off this call and go read The Magic Fish again. Because uh, I'm just like, <laughs> oh my God, so exciting. But I saw that not just in the way their, their clothing manifested, but also in what the implicit or explicit morals of the different fairy tales are, right? Mm-hmm. And retelling a fairy tale with a different ending is fundamentally important to the narrative as a whole. Yes. <laughs> I'm curious if that's a part of what you talked about Growing up with your family and and sharing fairy tales, I'm curious, did you do a lot of reinvention? And either way, why was that so important to how this story unfolds? So the reinvention of fairy tales and like kind of reiterating on stories is not something that I had always been super attuned to. Like I said before, like my attitude about doing things is that I like to do things properly. So I like rules, I like parameters, I, I need to know what the right way to tell a story is. And so I spent a lot of time like when I was a lot younger, when I learned that fairy tales were iterative, I would be like, oh, like, it would be fun to trace the story back to its source. And I think like academics have done this too. And I think the general consensus now is that like, there are a lot of archetypes of stories that prop up because human beings are people and we all need to eat. And so our priorities are kind of similar on a very like kind of basic level. But I I loved kind of like trying to map out like the journey of a story and like figuring out where um, stories end up and how people tell them differently. And so it was uh, it was kind of a new thing for me. And I think learning to reinvent stories, to kind of take stories and relieve yourself of that sense of preciousness, like, oh, like, this is such an important and essential story. I shouldn't change it at all. And I'm coming to, like, a realization as a creator that, you know, like, stories are wonderful. They're how we connect with each other, and they're incredibly important in terms of, you know, how we experience the fabric of the human experience. Like, all of that. Stories are important. But the storyteller, like the people around them, like people are more important than fiction. And so if a story doesn't suit us, I think it's lovely to be able to change them and to sort of like make them what it is that we need. And that's sort of a new thing for me. And so I guess that that kind of portion of the magic fish is indicative of a little bit of my own personal growth, honestly. Either on your Twitter feed or in an interview, I don't know which, I read you talking about how what you set out to do with the magic fish was to, you know, write a story about fairy tales and you weren't quite expecting for it to be so personal and emotional. <laughs> and I'm curious, what led you there? Like what crumbs did you follow to end up in such a, a frankly vulnerable and I mean, beautiful place? <laughs> I think it happened largely by accident. I think at some point, I mean, the reason why the magic fish has so many different stories in, in it is because I never considered making comics to be like a thing that I could do for a job. (laughs) I was always very practical growing up. Like I was like, I need a desk job. I need to be able to feed myself. I can make my art on the side. I can do whatever feeds the soul later on like that. Like I need to be able to feed my stomach before I feed my soul is kind of like where my priorities were. And so when it was picked up by Random House Graphic and Gina, I was like, when will I ever get a chance to make a graphic novel again? (laughs) And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to tell all of my favorite stories in one little package. How do I do that? And so that was kind of the impetus for telling all of the different stories. But because they were things that were sort of already inherently precious to me, at some point I had to give myself permission to be totally confessional because everybody's like first major project is going to be a little bit confessional. There's no way that you can hide yourself in your storytelling. And so when I kind of let go of that 
kind of creative block of that thing that was like, I need to hold the story at arm's length. I started to examine why all of these particular fairy tales were important to me. And then I think what ended up happening was that I landed on the ways that I like to tell stories. And because I am not someone who's ever written a long form work of fiction before, I've never written any fictional work before um, The Magic Fish. I came at it like I was writing a thesis, like I wanted to make a point, And then I used three kind of different components to reiterate the point. And then I added a little bit of a wrinkle to that point, And then I reiterated the point again at the end. And so it was structured quite a lot like an essay. And so I think that's why the back matter kind of really helps facilitate the storytelling a little bit after you've already read the story, um, is that it, it kind of follows the trajectory of, nerdily enough, uh, an academic an academic treatise. Um, and so the the ways that the story became more emotionally resonant was that at some point I just decided to be more honest about what these fairy tales meant to me. And if I'm going to, you know, tell a story within a story and each of the stories had to be done in a way that was radically empathetic to the characters to the extent that I would root out and display their particular imaginations and perspectives, I also needed to extend that empathy to myself. And so I kind of just let myself have a lot of feelings and sort of work that out in the story um, after I'd already put up all of the scaffolding and outlined the story. And we are all so lucky that you did it. <laughs> Thank you. It is it is such a personal story. And it feels like, oh, I got a little emotional there. Uh, it feels very important to me. There's something happening in it, and I don't know how to ask this question, so we'll just find it okay, together. Yes. It's that it feels significant that the, you know, there, there's the two protagonists. There's Helen, the mom, and then Tian, the young boy who's maybe in, like, fourth grade? Fifth grade, sixth grade, oh, he's thirteen. Somewhere in yeah, there. so he's in middle he's 13, school. Thirteen, mm-hmm. thirteen. Okay, I'm really bad with children's ages. That is not <laughs> a reflection of you. I'm like, you're like twelve until college, right? Okay, so he's thirteen. Oh, God, he's so cute too. I just love him to bits. And he is a gay boy, and he knows that about himself. But then the characters we're talking about in the fiction stories are all at least present as women mm-hmm. or as girls. And it feels like something important is happening with the tug of gender there. And I'm not, I'm not sure what it is. Like as a non-binary person, though, I'm like, I see pieces of myself in in the different characters. I'm curious, is that something intentionally you went into play with? Or perhaps another way to put it is like, why is Tian relating so much to the female characters who the point of view is pretty predominantly from once we're in the fairy tales? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, I think a part of it is a little bit unintentional. They just happen to be the characters that I gravitated towards as a kid. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to tell a bunch of princess stories because these are the stories that I like to draw and the stories that I like to tell. Um, but there is a little bit of an interrogation of gender and how we express queerness now, as opposed to the ways that it might have been done like in the 90s or before that. And the story, like the contemporary story takes place in the 90s. And so I think it kind of comes from that place where like I kind of grew up in the 90s. And at least among like queer men or gay men, especially the cis ones, there's like a lot of like diva worship going on. And so there's a little bit of affinity with kind of like a feminine perspective in terms of storytelling And so that's something that I sort of grew up not really appreciating on purpose, but it's something that has sort of made its way into my storytelling. And nowadays, I think that like if you're kind of growing up queer or LGBTQ, there are a lot of ways that 
the relationship to gender is quite a lot more malleable and not quite as cisnormative as it was. Um, and I, I think there's like a lot of queer history that happens in between those sentiments as well. Like certainly in the 70s and 80s, like before like the AIDS crisis, queerness was something that wasn't really concerned with being normative, that wasn't really concerned with like being accepted. It was just sort of like there are a lot of stories about people, you know, being gender nonconforming and their um, very contentious relationship with law enforcement and with the police and the ways that people would express themselves were really varied. And then all of a sudden, like kind of in the 90s, there was this sentiment when I was growing up that like, oh, like we're gay, but we're just like you. We're concerned about all of the same things. We wear polos and we're frustrated with our spouses and we want children. And so there's just like this kind of weird respectability backlash after, you know, we, we lost a lot of our elders in the 80s and early 90s. And then kind of like growing up and coming out in the aughts, like my relationship with my gender was also very cisnormative. And then like going through college and after college, doing gender studies and like kind of looking back at those things now, I'm just like, oh, like I was taught by a lot of people that we would consider by today's standards to be TERFs. Like there was a lot of gender essentialism in the curricula and academia that we had to unpack after we graduated and became adults and like started navigating the world and figuring out that the ways that we think about gender and bodies are like hostile to our, you know, trans friends and loved ones. And so like, there's just a lot of like this constant push and pull about like where the stories kind of like perspective needed to land and its relationship to gender is not something that I interrogated kind of on purpose, but I think it's a part of kind of the fabric of a larger conversation about transness and queerness in general and how we think about like our genders and the reasons why like they kind of move back and forth between kind of being something that is liberating and then reactionarily pulling all the way back into this space of respectability. Um, so I bet there's some of that. I'm sorry, I rambled on a little bit, but like there's a there's no, a lot of No, I was like, yes, 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 yes. That's all I've been doing <laughs> with the mic off. So uh no, I, I think you really helped me understand what I was feeling there because it seems like the narrative has so much, frankly, like respect for women and and lifts up women's voices and women's perspectives and honors Helen as really the person who is driving Tien's life forward and and taking care of him. And that that's so beautiful. I think so often we end up with narratives that, as you've described, fall into gender essentialism or into, you know, this is the way the world works stuff, which is a gender essentialism. But I really appreciated the way the narrative sort of resisted that. I also like that it's never commented on. Like, no one's like, oh, Tian, you like girl stories. Like, I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, loved that that wasn't in there. I also love that Tian's friends are just very accepting of him. And they're like, it's okay. We love you. Like, we'll always have your back. And you're just like, oh, the babies. <laughs> I love them taking care of each other. But that all feels like it's part of the same soup. Sometimes when I read comics, it's like the characters who are boys or men are only friends with boys or men. And the characters who are women who are only friends with girls and women. And and it's, you know, A, not my experience of the world, and B, particularly not my experience of being a queer mm -hmm. person. The communities I've always been in have been very gender diverse. And I mean that, like, well beyond the binary. So I, I loved that. And thank you so much for, you know, being willing to go there with us. I think the magic fish is something really special. Oh, and that, that made me remember, I wanted to talk about 
one of the integral moments, right, is that uh, Tiana is, is, is searching for this language. Like, how do I talk to my mom about what's happening inside of me, about something, a truth I found of myself? How do I share that with my mom? And one of the things he shares with his friend is I went to the library and I looked, I tried to find the word gay in Vietnamese and we couldn't find that word. And I think this dovetails with pretty much everything we've been talking so far. They find this other language through fairy tales, but also truly for us through comics, through that orthography, iconography blend where they can have a conversation eventually about Tian's sexuality because they work through a shared text. And I'm curious how that connects to your other thoughts around gender and queerness and about how we find these these shared languages. Yeah, um, I think a lot of my thinking about that has to do with my fascination with Hans Christian Andersen, who, um, like, I I don't want to, like, retroactively ascribe a dead person with, like, a particular, like, queerness. So we don't know exactly, but Mm -hmm. he was a queer person. Um, A lot of people describe him as asexual, um, but also like biromantic or bisexual because he did experience and express in his letters uh, sexual or romantic attraction to people of all genders. And the ways that he in particular chose to kind of externalize his queerness and his experiences was to write children's stories. He wrote The Little Mermaid while he was also kind of going through this, um, not breakup, but like his heart was in a space where it was just really hurting quite a lot because he had a lot of love for a male friend of his who didn't reciprocate his feelings, but was also marrying a mutual friend of theirs as well. And so there was just a lot of like big queer feelings of, I want to be with you. I know that I can't. Um, I know that you don't love me the same way. Um, He wrote, like, I feel like half a woman, and that sort of became this sort of impetus for writing a story about a half woman, half fish character, wanting to be a part of a world that wouldn't have her, that she couldn't survive ultimately. And that, I think, is sort of the crux. That's the thing upon which a lot of my thinking about fairy tales and about queerness hinges, is that we have found ways to creatively and inventively express ourselves when we didn't have the words to talk about those things, when we didn't have a shared vocabulary. Human beings have always wanted to kind of reach out and connect with other people. And so when we kind of recognize that in another person and we can sort of like be forgiving about the language that we use, that becomes a really powerful way to open doors and to connect with other people. So that's kind of where that comes from. You got me with that one. (laughs) The idea of being half a woman and, and writing a mermaid, fuck. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that for like the rest of my life. <laughs> I like Hans Christian Andersen a lot also. And I think that it's not the only one, right? Because there's that story of the shadow where like encounters himself and like all of that too. And I think that there's a lot of queerness to that story as well. Again, not to really be like, I know what's up with that guy <laughs> like who lived and died well before I was born. Yeah, who, who knows? But it is interesting to be able to look back and be like, oh, yeah, that person 
you know, inspired so much of fairy tales too, right? So it seems like there's almost an inherent queerness in some ways as well, which is pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. And like, he's great because like fairy tales we often think about as like oral tradition stories and like the Grimm's Brothers collections. Um, But Hans Christian Andersen was a contemporary writer. He was writing in the 1800s. And so like his stories Mm -hmm. were like edited and published and like we have similar relationships to, to the stories that we consume today from our peers. So I, I always find that to be kind of like a nice little point of connection. Yeah, definitely. I also kind of was wondering about how this is in some ways almost a coming out story, but it's like not, but it is. But I hear a lot of people say things about you know, oh, well, we've had too many coming out stories. And we've talked with a ton of people on this show about how like, no, we just, we want more, like no matter what. And I think that this is a good example of that because as much as I've read a bunch of coming out stories, I've never read this story, Mm -hmm. right? Like this was brand new and exciting and kind of metatextual in a lot of ways. So, yeah, because it's it's mostly somebody who knows who they are and they have to communicate it to somebody else, which, of course, you know, as everybody knows, is kind of a big part of coming out. But, yeah, I was just curious how you feel about coming out stories, if there was something that made you specifically kind of want to gravitate towards that in the text, or if it's just, you know, it was something where you were like just kind of writing from your heart and so it just happened. I mean, I think while I was making it, I was just writing it from my heart and that's how it happened. But my relationship to kind of coming out stories and also to immigrant stories, because there are also a lot of sentiments about immigrant stories as well. Like people do rightly express some frustration about like there being a lot of common tropes in, you know, what immigrant stories we find to be palatable for like a white audience. And Mm. so there's a lot of like stories about like intergenerational tension, which comes from a real place. It also comes from a particular place in time too. And so like my attitude about both coming out stories and immigrant stories is that we need more of them all of the time because we come out as different things at different times. We come out more than once oftentimes in our lifetimes as queer people. And we learn new things about ourselves all the time. And so we're in this constant process of like discovering new things about ourselves and then wanting to share those things with the people that are important to us. And so I think we always need more coming out stories because they will never look the same like from decade to decade, Um, but we'll still find points of connection. And I think that's a really wonderful thing. One of the points of contention, I think, with a lot of coming out stories that I ran across is that oftentimes like coming out stories are not told for the benefit of queer people. It oftentimes centers around queer trauma and abandonment and rejection. And that is something that's really real. And I think that those stories are really important. I'm glad that we have them. I set out to tell not that story because I had a pretty positive coming out experience. And it's something that I've said, I think, in kind of like previous panels and stuff before, but I always find it to be really important to kind of come back. Um, And it's the reason why, like, Helen is also a protagonist. She's, you know, not a background character. I really wanted to flesh her out and explore her growth is because, you know, like, as people who are adults, who are aware of, like, there being children around, like, there is the sense that we would need to be able to usher in a new generation in ways where they wouldn't have to experience all the trauma that we went through. And so in telling a coming out story and telling a story where the mother character, despite not having the language to like really express that she supports her child. I wanted to kind of give people like a ceiling because we, you know, we have a lot of trauma stories 
kind of like at the floor. And I wanted to be able to tell a story where like, okay, like if your coming out experience was not as positive as this one, like you have a right to be upset and you have a right to be angry because everyone should have love from their guardians. And that should be the thing that we expect. We can't live in a world where we are resigned to being traumatized every time we reveal something about ourselves. We can expect more for ourselves than that. And the part that, you know, makes us feel disappointed or sad or angry that that wasn't our experience, like that's a good thing. That means that we love ourselves and we want more for ourselves as queer people. And so I I thought that was really important to kind of tell like a positive coming out story because I think people should be able to expect it and people should know that they deserve that. It's positive, but it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. That's what I think is one of the most powerful. You made me cry again. Uh, (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) No, don't be. If if I don't cry, episode didn't happen. Um, (laughs) Usually it's me, but sometimes Sarah cries too. We're we're emotional here at Bitches on Comics. Um, Yeah, I, I think that there's something really powerful about, you know, there's this moment where Tiana's crestfallen and is like, I'm not even going to be the one who gets to come out. Like, this is happening to me. And I don't want to give too much of the detail away. But I think that there's a real way that so many of us are outed versus getting to really choose the language of how we come out. And how it's beautiful in this story because that isn't what takes over. Mm-hmm. What takes over is, um, you know, a mother's fierce love for her child. And, like, there is no doubt in Helen's mind, right? Like, this is my kid, and I am here for my kid. And that is, I think, such a beautiful way of taking something that that can be so negative. I guess I just feel like there's so much grace in this for, like, yes, here I see your pain. I see the way things hurt. And it doesn't have to always be the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And it doesn't have to be the only part of the coming out. Because as you said, right, like, Tian has come out to the librarian trying to find the language to come out to his, his family. So then, you know, he's got that layer of coming out. And he is out to his friend because she figured it out. And then he's out to his other friend because he figured it out. Because he said he was going to marry Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> I died. I fucking died. Oh, that was so cute. And there's so much space in between the specific events of the coming out to say that, like, there is and this is something Anthony Oliveira said on on the pod once, is that there's not a singular coming out story and there's not a perfect coming out story. There is just what happens to us. And we need stories about all of those things. And that's that's what I see in these pages. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with that sentiment 100%. I mean, one of the things that I always think about in terms of coming out and the ways that coming out looks different nowadays is that we, we often get really caught up in language. We sometimes can get pretty prescriptivist about queerness. And it comes from a really positive place of like wanting to honor the different ways that people like to describe themselves. But even like as queer adults, like we'll find um, like younger LGBTQ youth who are like, oh, like I feel differently about different terms. So I'm going to use maybe something else to describe myself. And, you know, wanting to support people across rapidly changing language is something that I think we can all really relate to in Helen's journey. Like she has a different language barrier, but that's something that I found to be um, kind of like a real strong point of connection between me and that character. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think we spend a lot of time, Sarah and I, talking about 
how, and I think it's partially just because of the ages we are, how there's like this, you know, this tension between some groups of queer people, predominantly older queer people who are like, stop trying to find a micro label. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the younger queer people, again, predominantly, these aren't actually necessarily perfect generational lines by any means, but, you know, who are more, you know, like, oh, I want to find the right word for me. And I think that our perspective is, is like yours, Trung, like, like Helen's, where it's like, hey, we're all just describing something. We're mm-hmm. not really, like, language is so much in, in the ability to have shared signifiers, but it's also in the ability to understand approximations, I think particularly in bilingual households, or multilingual households, I should say, because many, many households speak more than, than two languages. There's something really beautiful in using that sort of multiplicity and then applying it back to queerness of like, no, we don't have to speak the exact same language, but can we find ways to share and connect? Like that's the real testament of community. It seems to me as part of what you're saying. Is that fair? Yes. No, that's a hundred percent correct. I mean, like I said before, like in all forms of storytelling, the, the story is never more important than the person. So that, that dovetails into that sentiment beautifully, I think. Uh, that was truly beautiful. Switching gears a little bit, I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about your tarot deck, the Star Spinner Tarot. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so I, (laughs) when I graduated from college, I was just like a little crestfallen that I had not gone to art school. And the thing that I was kind of falling into was, you know, posting illustrations on the internet. Um, So I was like, okay, I need a project with a consistent format, but also a lot of narrative diversity that I can sort of engage with in a way that can get me to practice illustration and drawing. And so I started drawing a, uh, a tarot deck. And the impetus for the project was actually that I got into a group show at a local gallery called the Light Gray Art Lab, um, which is run by some really amazing people. And it was my very first like kind of gallery thing. I was like, oh, like I can be an artist. Like this is something that I can do. Um, And I got to draw the 10 of cups and then an Oracle card, um, Saturn, I think it was. And I got really fascinated with the tarot deck and its history and its relationship to the printing press and the ways that the story of that tarot deck kind of like makes its way through the last century. And because I'm like just a huge egghead, I just dove in and did like fell into many research holes and just like started drawing like the major arcana. And then I was like, well, I'm really interested in the minor arcana too. So I'm going to draw all of those. Um, So it just, it started off as an illustration project and I let it get out of hand and I just kept going. (laughs) How long do you think it was between the the first card, which you said was the Ten of Cups, is that correct? Mm -hmm. And then sort of having a complete deck? Um, Well, I started over after I drew that Ten of Cups because I realized that I wanted to format the cards a little bit differently. Um, But I think the project overall took something like four years to complete mostly because I wasn't working on it continuously and I hadn't made any plans to like publish it. But at some point, actually, actually around the same time that the Magic Fish was pitched and sold, um, I also sold the Star Spinner Tarot deck. And so I had deadlines that I needed to honor (laughs) and that got me to finish the deck a little faster. (laughs) (laughs) I can appreciate that. Yeah. So where does the name Star Spinner come from and, and what's it referencing? Um, because the star card is my favorite card, um, because it comes right after a lot of kind of disastrous cards. <laughs> um, so it comes after the 16th card, the tower, and then the moon and the sun come shortly after that too. And so the arc of the major arcana 
right there is that like after a catastrophe, you look up into the sky and you see the constellations and you kind of know where you are despite the darkness around you. And so the star has always been like kind of my favorite card. I love the number 17 as well, which is the star's number. Whenever I start a new tarot deck and <laughs> I've drawn or I've started a, like a lot of them and I've completed a couple of them, um, but I always start with the star and it becomes sort of like the thing around which all of the other cards sort of revolve. And so calling it the star spinner deck was uh, a nod to that and also a nod to the fact that I think that tarot decks are like a choose your own adventure story about your own life. It's kind of dynamic storytelling and community building at the same time. You make a conscious narrative connection with another person as you interrogate your own life. And I think that's a really beautiful way to kind of make connections. And so that's kind of how the deck was named. <laughs> totally. And I, I can just see all these connections between fairy tales and tarot and like the the oral tradition paired with a visual tradition. It just, I'm like, mm -hmm, I see Trung. I see what you're doing there. Mm -hmm. I am curious what you're working on next. Um, oh, I... <laughs> okay, so I've been doing a bunch of really short DC projects, um, which I have been surprisingly enjoying because I have sworn up and down for most of my life that uh, my work is not always going to be appropriate for superhero comics, and I couldn't imagine myself being appropriate for a superhero story. Um, but then uh, some really incredible editors at DC were like, hey, like we've got some short comics if you want to like try your hand at it. And I was like, sure, can I do it? in this way that I like to do comics. And they were like, yes. And so I, I got to draw, um, it came out uh, very recently, but like there was a Green Lantern short story that I drew with Min Lei for the Festival of Heroes. And then I did a pride story with uh, James Tiny and the Fourth, and they were both lettered by Aditya Bidikar. And uh, that was a really lovely process. And I did, um, oh, I don't know if it's been announced yet, but people have figured it out. So I'm just going to say it. But um Marguerite Bennett wrote a, an Aquaman story for his 80th anniversary, and I got to do the drawings for that, and it's being colored by Jordi Belair. I don't know who's doing the lettering just yet, but I'm, I'm excited for that. And then I have one more short DC project that I can't talk about just yet. Um, and then I'm also working on my second graphic novel with Random House Graphic. It doesn't have a title yet, but it's a pastiche of a fairy tale called East of the Sun and West of the Moon set in a contemporary setting with a girl who's a bit of a theater geek. So it'll be, it'll be fun. So, you know, lots of free time. Not <laughs> up to much, I'm just like, oh, like. I need to say no to some more projects because I would like a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> we want that for you too. You gotta, gotta rest because we, we hope you have a very, very long career that we get to follow along with because we, we love your work. Oh, thank it's you. Really incredible. <laughs> yeah. Trung the Magic Fish is truly something special. And, and listeners, I hope that you will go either pick it up from your local library or go purchase it. You can get it pretty damn near anywhere and your local comic store can probably get it in for you. I got mine from the local bookstore, The Tattered Cover, here in Denver, Colorado. There's a free ad. Uh, so go check it out. Go to your library. Make sure you get your hands on it. It is not a book you want to miss. So, Trung, if people want to find you on social media, A, do you want them to? And B, if you do, where can they find you? <laughs> um, I am pretty active on Twitter and Instagram, and my handle in both places is at Trungles. My website is also trungles.com, and that'll have links to all pertinent social media, whether I'm active on them or not. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We will also make sure to put your website and handles in our show notes. So listener, if you didn't have a pen out, 
go check out the show notes for this episode and you can figure out where to follow Trung. Trung, cannot thank you enough for your time, for sharing such a beautiful story with us, for getting me all up in my feelings, <laughs> making me cry. I enjoy that very much. We appreciate you being part of our pride extravaganza. Oh, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was absolutely delightful. Thank you. Absolutely. Sarah, you know I love you. I appreciate you with my whole soul. Listeners, we think you're the best. Thanks for joining us for another episode. podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.